Yeah, I mean, obviously you always want to start start better. I think that's been a bit of an issue for for our team, and um, you know, in the last round, and then obviously last night as well. It's just these starts, and um, it's hard to dig yourself out of holes sometimes, especially this time of year when when things are so tight. And I think that just coming out with with more urgency and, and more pace uh, to start games and uh, not having to climb out of a hole uh, early will obviously benefit us. Look better coming out of the gates. Uh, scoreboard didn't uh, represent that. It's fan drive time. Sportsnet 590, the fan. Sportsnet 360, Ben Ennis, Blake Murphy. So, Blake, and I'll just speak for myself, we wondered if there would be that sense of urgency, whether it would feel the same, whether the the, the stakes would feel as high as every game during that first-round series between the Leafs and the Tampa Bay Lightning. I could say, for this man... Sitting right here? Nah, they, they didn't. Game one, and it is game one, and both of these teams lost game one in the first round and still won their uh, their series, so maybe that plays into it. But it was it was definitely a different feeling game one to, like, the referendum we had to have after the effort per, put forth in game one against the Lightning. Oh, we experienced it differently then. Okay. I, uh, so I thought the Leafs started really strong last night. I thought yeah, they, they played did. really good hockey early on, and I had a very heavy feeling after those first couple extended possessions where they had some zone time, the early power plays, you come out of those having been like feeling pretty good about the the hockey you're playing, but having not and got one, I was like, Oh no. And uh, yeah, all that anxiety came right back because this is a, a winnable series and it's a wide open playoff field. And yeah, it turned quickly from, well, at least there aren't ghosts, et cetera to, Oh man, you, you yeah. want this. And it's there. And, like, there was also a a weird element of just, like, stylistic whiplash to deal with where the brand of hockey the Florida Panthers play is so much more enjoyable than the Lightning, even though it felt like I was, like, trying to catch my breath at times. Right. Because we just went through maybe the slowest pace of all the first-round playoff series. Hits, goals, penalties. Like, there was everything in that. rushes. Oh, my goodness. Um, Bourne had a stat in his piece at sportsnet.ca today that um, last night there were way more odd man rushes mm-hmm. between the two teams then even in the overtime games the yep. Leafs and Lightning were putting up so the the numbers back that up high event hockey really free flowing hockey so there was an element of that but um that kind of felt more like that that played into the anxiousness of the moment because it is a real breakneck pace where at least with the Tampa Bay series it's heavy but you get moments to collect yourself and to reset <laughs> and you know they're it's a plodding style that they're playing wow. uh, and they're trying to you know minimize events a little bit more and then this one it's just like oh no if you like if you look off the screen for a second uh you might miss the florida panthers doing something or the florida panthers giving up yeah. an opportunity to the leafs to do something so uh i didn't feel as anxiety free as you i did enjoy that game a lot more than any of the tampa ones but i think that might be more a style thing than a mentality thing well and despite the open style the maple leafs only score two goals for the third consecutive playoff game and one of those games they only got the second goal because they played in overtime in game six the scoring's been way down it's three straight games without a power play goal as well uh, I 0 for think, 8 over that span. I did oh, think the power play... This is what I was going to get to, right? So, okay. You were about to say, I did think the power play created a lot of chances and looked pretty good because that's there's only one takeaway. That's, a, of course, correct. So that plays into how you view that that 60-minute hockey game. Are you encouraged? Because, hey, Sergei Bobrovsky had to stand on his head, especially in that third period. There were times where he made some big saves and on the couple of power plays, especially for the Maple Leafs, 
They certainly seem to create a lot more than they did against the Tampa Bay Lightning. They came back from a two goals to not, uh, nothing deficit and then blew it uh, uh, before the period was out. Or are you discouraged that in a game in which, I mean, for the first time, it, it, it's not even definitive, but you can make the argument that for the first time in this postseason, Maple Leafs outplayed a team and got the the short end of the stick. So is it a positive day for Leaf fans? Because, hey, they didn't look great in winning four of the six games against the Lightning, but they got it done. Well, they looked pretty good against the Panthers in game one and didn't get it done. Yeah, I mean, you have to be a little discouraged by the fact that you're down one game to nothing, and that game counts. But I thought, you know, a lot of what I thought heading into this series is that the Leafs can certainly find ways to beat this Florida Panthers team. And they're going to be... You know, you saw why last night that Florida Panthers team led the first round in how many shorthanded opportunities they faced. And Paul Maurice can do all the Wakanda forever that he oh, wants buddy. at the referees. We're going to talk about that. Yeah. And I mean, <laughs> a stick hit a guy in the face and, and caused him to bleed. I don't know how you can right, You want to do it. it now? Okay. Well, it's just, <laughs> no, we'll, we'll, we'll pocket it, but okay. it's, it's ridiculous. So I, I think that's something that's going to continue. I, I think that the Leafs power play did create chances and opportunities in an encouraging way. However, um, I think when they look at the tape today, they are going to see avenues that they could have created even more. Like Florida did a really good job giving Austin Matthews kind of the like three point shooter treatment of Mm -hmm. Marner and Riley had all the time and space in the world along the perimeter. And the second Matthews got the puck or the Mm -hmm. second they had, they moved Matthews to, you know, more of a stationary net front presence at one point, because anytime he like flared out, there was a man on him. There was no room for, I think he had the one, one timer that missed low glove side and rang off the Mm -hmm. post. And that was it Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of his opportunities to shoot on the power play. And we know that the least power play is, you know, would prefer to run through Austin Matthew shots. So I I think they're going to see more on the film. They can do to either leverage that space on the outside or create more chaos in front. Uh, I know, you know, getting to the net front is going to be a a big talking point, especially with a guy like William Nylander, who who was really content to play on the outside. He sure was. And, I know he didn't know that the, the opening showed up in front of him, but he's doing the spinorama, and it's nothing but but Green Acres yeah. in front of him decides there to were, there were also cycle a it back where, out. Like, Nylander must have, I don't know, four or five goals this year where – it looks like on a on a you know slower zone entry, it looks like he's going to go the outside and go behind the net, and he quickly cut. Like once he realizes he's got the edge on the defenseman, yes. he quickly cuts back to the middle to just, if nothing else, get some bodies in front of Bobrovsky, mm-hmm. get him trying to stop scrum chances instead. Um, and there there was one where he just looped way around the net and came yeah. all the way back. And I I understand that patience can be uh, an important thing, and against Tampa Bay, they almost necessitated that if you could even gain the the zone uh, in a controlled fashion. But I think there's a lot of stuff on, on the tape. The Leafs are going to be able to watch back and say, hey, we played like we were playing against Tampa still. Yeah. And here, here, and here are opportunities where Florida lets us play a different style of game. And honestly, a style of game that maybe suits them a little better, at least offensively. Um, so all of that is real. But yeah, in terms of are you encouraged or discouraged, I'm just couraged because Ooh. Florida is courage? Florida is a really good team. And yeah, they, I don't. I don't really know what you do with Brandon Montour, and um, well, I think you like hope that he doesn't shoot twenty two percent like he's done this postseason. Okay, uh, <laughs> he, he had like one of the best offensive seasons for a defenseman no we've question. seen in quite a while. And he like, still shot six percent, but yeah, I, 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 and it's not even just like okay, let's say he doesn't score another goal for the rest of the series. Mm-hmm. You see how his ability to push play and even the threat of him 
at the blue line and, and on those, you know, I, I know that, that people warned about and there was a great BXA breakdown at first intermission of how Florida's D, it's it's not even like pinching to hold the blue line. They, mm-hmm. they are down below the tops of the circles before Toronto's defense and wingers even look up to start to give out a breakout. Yeah, just like uh, Jake McCabe was on uh, the 3-2 goal after the big hit. And he yeah. was throwing bodies everywhere. That was what was so great about yesterday's yeah. game. And the Luke Shen hit on Matthew Kachuk. Oh, just chef's kiss yeah. type of stuff. But uh, yeah, that's one I think in, in film breakdown, they're going to be wondering what exactly Jake McCabe was doing on that yeah. play. With a, what, about two and a half minutes to go in the second period, makes the big hit and the puck's going up the ice and... He's participating somehow by skating into the into the offensive yeah. zone where the puck came nowhere near him and all TJ Vardy was stuck on an island. And I get it. You want to lay Declare out there. You hope that in the hit. in the shallow neutral zone, the your guys get possession back, right? And, and then it's turning the other way. Coming coming off a big hit with, you know, Declare still <laughs> finding his legs underneath him. Uh but yeah, the Leafs ended up with too many deep and yeah. got nothing off of it. And this Florida Panthers team is a really, really good counterpunch team. Like, like that Bruins series was almost nothing but yep. mistake punishing. Yep. Right. From the offensive end. So anyway, all of this is to say, I thought the Leafs did some things well, but have a lot of room to do things better. That leaves me fairly encouraged. You also lost the game though. And now you have fewer, no, no, you no. have a, a lesser window here to take advantage of it. And I don't think they have an answer for what the heck to do against that Matt Kachuk line. No, and Matt Kachuk in particular, who had nine hits in the hockey game. He had 20 over the seven-game series against the Boston Bruins. Quick math, that's just slightly fewer than three per game. He had nine! <laughs> Put your <laughs> calculator away, <laughs> Dork. Nine, yeah. nine in the hockey game it's had the three hits, assists, man. and then draws the penalty mm-hmm. that leads to the, and the delayed in, penalty And not goal. even in a Kachuk way, right? Like no. It's just like, that's good, yep. hard hockey and you got tripped up and he didn't like he was annoying but he didn't even like like nope. i don't think that was matt kachuk like pressing the envelope or anything like that i think mm. that was just like a, a good matt you press kachuk. an envelope you push it push the envelope sure yeah okay you can do whatever you want with an envelope yeah. all right so now that we're here i i did mention the the six on five goal on the delayed penalty paul maurice did not include that in his assessment of the five one Power play. Uh, so yeah, also, I didn't, didn't know the Leafs only have four power play. Yeah. Well, they, he called the double minor too. So that's what I'm going to 30 <laughs> seconds left in the game. So, sure. Good so, math. Palmer. And you know what? I saw somebody in my, in my Twitter mentions saying, Hey, if you do take a penalty at the end of the hockey game, you're trailing. Shouldn't you be able to, to play out the entirety of that power play to which I said, that's not half bad. That's like kind of makes a so lot of sense. I was sitting there thinking it should carry over to the next game. Oh, because okay. like if you're up two in that situation, like yeah. you kind of have incentive to go like like prison rules, right? Well, that's it. But I I think the more they didn't punishing, do that. but yeah, but the more punishing thing. I mean, in a two goal hockey game, when you can pull the goalie, mm-hmm. would be to hey, we're gonna extend this game by another, you know. Yeah. Three minutes and, I, I and twenty think, seconds. I think that probably tilts it too far. Now, nah, like, like, like suddenly, it, like it, a penalty in the last two minutes would then be like the oh, worst yeah. thing you could possibly. Yeah, do you want to talk about officials swallowing their whistle like that? Uh, yeah. That thing they might even take them off their yeah. necks. We'd go. Point. We'd go from like the current environment encourages you to do anything you absolutely can think of to stop so a don't goal in the final anybody. thirty seconds. To yeah, here, have the goal, have one, <laughs> have one. That's it's right. Fine. Yeah, it might be. Yeah, when a team is is down uh, four in. in 
in in the NBA that you just let him take the shot. It, it in would the dying also seconds. or like foul up three, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then the other scenario is like if you applied this to regular season games, some of those games where it's like a three or four goal game and there's just a huge scrum at the end of the game, and then suddenly there's like 27 minutes worth of penalties <laughs> doled out, and yeah. everyone's just kind of sit never there and ends. play the last couple minutes. Yeah. I mean, there would be no deficit that you couldn't come back from. All right. So Paul Maurice incorrect with the five one. The, the the real total is four two, but again, that type of mentality is everything that's wrong with the way counting, this sport is officiated. Counting a high stick that draws blood, and I know it wasn't intentional. It was just like they got tangled up, and you got to be in control of your stick. But counting that as two penalties anyway, I do what? not understand <laughs> the logic for that. It's, no, it's not, not well. I get the logic for it because you're trying to make like five one sounds a whole lot better than four two when you're I, yeah. I doing yeah the arms crossed I I don't understand like was was the official looking at him when he did that either way again the worst thing that you can do as far as playing into the narrative that you need to even it up that officials need to control the game by hey we gave two power plays to this team guess who's getting the the next one the other team and that actually ended up happening in the hockey game but it, it, I was going to say it was legit, but, I mean, the Mark Giordano hook was, I, I, I guess it happened. I mean, if you want to, if anybody has a complaint about a call in the game, it is the Toronto Maple Leafs with that one call. But other than that, I mean, I, was there anything missed in the hockey game? There's a reason why you were the most penalized team during the regular season. There's a reason why they're the most penalized team during the postseason. It's your style of play. Everybody knows it. Like, where are these egregious phantom calls that you and, think are happening? Yeah, and I, I don't know. Maybe if you, you watch it back with a Florida Panthers lens on, maybe there are a couple Leafs things that they feel didn't get called. But, like, three of Florida's Panthers were, like, very obvious stick penalties. Yep. I don't know. I don't know what to do about that, Paul Maurice. No, I don't either. I don't know what to do with Sergei Bobrovsky if he's going to go into into Vesna mode, which is, I mean, you talk about it when we talk about baseball. Hey, once you've displayed a skill, yeah. you own that skill. Well, this guy has two Vesna trophies, so and has stolen some playoff series. I know his playoff track record overall is kind of spotty. Yeah, but he and has, even against the Bruins, it was spotty. He has some very high highs. So. You're not going to say blanket statement after one game that this is what you're running into, but it was funny to think back to, you know, some of those chances against a guy that's going to the Hall of Fame and Andre Vasilevsky. How many of them seemingly would have gotten past them if they had had those equal opportunities against the Tampa Bay Lightning? But, man, game one, there's a couple of different stories. One is the failure on the power play. I think number two is, holy cow, Sergei Bobrovsky, he's not in your head. You did score twice against him, but Mm -hmm. he looked... Full value for the ten million bucks he's earning finally for the Florida Panthers. Yeah, he looked great, and maybe Florida wins that game still if he's not quite at that level. Like I don't know if this goes as far as oh he stole you a game because it was a fairly even game overall. But yeah, there were a handful of changes, especially on the scrambles in front of the net that the Leafs did manage to create. Where yeah, it felt like he kept them in that those moments at least, or, or um, you know allowed Florida to kind of take a take a breather. Yeah, uh, when the Leafs were were building pressure, and I I still don't really understand the physics of how, without looking, you realize and like his body language was like a oh crap I realize that the puck is like between your legs trickling back and yeah. your far leg comes around yeah. to sweep it and stop it. Like I don't understand the physics of how he notices that without being able to see the puck mm-hmm. and the puck not touching him. Like I don't understand. There's like just a sixth sense of well I don't know where the puck is so I should. 
swim my legs around and just make sure. And it, somehow not knock the puck into your own net. Yeah. That Some being pretty said, incredible moments for him. Yeah, and that being said, we ended yesterday's show like in t- total, <laughs> I mean, not disbelief and, and not understanding that, that Ilya Samsonov wouldn't be starting the game, but a little bit of confusion. And, and then, of course, after we finished the show, seeing the 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 highlight, the low light of Ilya Samsonov taking the puck off off the collarbone and and him immediately going like face down onto the ice. Yeah, you can understand why there was some serious concern, but I thought he was more than good enough, right? Like it, you, you can't put any of, of what happened on Ilya Samsonov. He continues to be at, at least what, what the Leafs expected out of him, if not more. And I thought late in the first period, especially, um, like I remember looking up at one point, I think he had nine saves on 10 shots. And I kind of chuckled to myself because I had made the joke yesterday that, oh, he had a 900 in the first round, but it was a good 900. And he was sitting there with nine saves on 10 shots. And I'm like, man, it feels like he has had <laughs> way more of an important first period, period for sure. I mean, yeah, you you allow the, the one goal, which is not his fault. It's on a rebound and yeah, maybe some some net front coverage there, but a couple of saves after that it could have mm-hmm. easily been three nothing Panthers headed into the first intermission. Yeah, and the 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 um, Bennett one that that kind of hits a couple sticks along the way. I don't know. There there was nothing. I mean, I know that he had he allowed four goals on you know what was it twenty eight shots or something like that. Yeah. Like that number doesn't look great. Throw but, the stats out. Is yeah, it's say. it's hard to hang any of that whatsoever on, on him. I thought he was solid for the most part, and that first period, especially after that first goal, kept that thing from snowballing a little bit uh all right uh blue jays also lost yesterday they lost the the first two to the boston red sox in their four game series game three tonight on sportsnet 590 the fan and sportsnet one let's talk to adnan verk mlb network nhl network and the cinephile podcast let's uh, start with the leafs though adnan uh how you feeling after game one comparing it to to, to game one against the lightning in which they lost seven two well it's amazing ben and blake always gonna chat with you guys because it went from this thought process of here we go again, right? Just a colossal bad loss in game one. There's already panic and hysteria in the streets of Toronto. To then a huge bounce back in game two. You know, they only played one complete game through four, yet they were up. And eventually, as we all know, gritty, hard-fought effort. You win in six on the road. So now with Florida, what happened after that series was, again, I'm not a gambler, but people around me gamble a lot, so they show me the odds. And the odds for the Leafs were the best of any remaining playoff team. And I said, hang on a second. This is a team that got blitzed in game one. Everyone knows they've got this tortured history. And yet they're now the favorite to win the Stanley Cup of eight remaining teams. I said, that's remarkable. I don't know if that means that people gamble them heavily because of the fan base or people just think the talent is number one. So I looked at that and I said to myself, all right, again, you have to look at these rosters and say, are they actually the best team remaining? And you could make a case for that. And then I, as I was talking to myself and they're thinking, well, hey, maybe the Leafs are the team to beat, I watched last night's game and go, we've got a long way to go here. 4-2 win. Florida's are really going to be a tough out. And if this goes back to this essential premise. Do you believe, by virtue of the fact the Panthers beat the Bruins, and the Bruins were the best team in the regular season, mm. therefore Florida is the team to beat? Mm. Or do you believe that they are the upstart, they, you know, they, they emptied the tank against the Bruins, they don't have much left in reserve, and therefore the Leafs will push them around? I, I never know, but I find this is generally the case. A team that has an overwhelming emotional win like that always plays great early in the next round. Like that mm-hmm. game one, you're right, you think it'd go the other way. You go, oh my God, game seven was so emotional. They're yeah. gonna no, they keep, they keep roaring because they're like, oh, my God, it was such a wave. They ride it game one, but then game two, game three, game four, it starts to go down a little bit. So I'm really curious. The Leafs will win game two. Pretty confident of that. You know, they'll get the split, and then goes back to Florida. I'm curious, as the series goes on, 
does the Leafs, I believe, uh, increase in talent end up making a difference? Or is Florida right now, the way that they're just applying pressure, big bodies, right, especially in the forecheck, do they wear down that Leafs defense? That's going to be amazing to see. Yeah, uh, I think we're, we're going to get an entertaining series, though, if game one is any indication. Uh, according to Luke Fox, the team's combining for 115 shot attempts, 65 scoring chances, 31 high-danger chances, and 83 hits. That was that was exciting, exciting to watch. And 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 the Leafs had their fair share of chances, despite the fact they only scored two goals. Two goals, by the way, in a third consecutive postseason game for them. Um, this is what Sergei Bobrovsky was paid to do. Signs the seven-year, seventy million dollar deal before the 1920 season. Adnan uh, coming off two Vesna trophies. If if they get one deep playoff run out of Sergei Bobrovsky, is that worth seventy million bucks? I think so, man. Honestly, Ben, they went 24 years without doing anything in the playoffs. They went around last year, should have done a lot better because of the President's Trophy winners, obviously fell flat against the Lightning, and now they're back again this year. But when you look back at the Panthers, and if you say to yourself, hey, this guy carries them to a cup, then yeah, it ends up being worth it because they haven't had any demonstrable success since 96. Like we're going back to Van Beesbrook and Mellonby and the Rats and all the rest of it. So I think we've all known Bobrovsky is capable of being an elite goaltender. You mentioned the previous business, but he's, he's definitely been consistent with the Panthers. Like there was no guarantee, I think at many points of the season, that Bobrovsky even was their number one. Like you could sort of talk yourself into to line or others maybe being in that mix. So um I do think Bobrovsky is an elite goaltender when push comes to shove. I think he's better than Samsonov if you just ask me to pick one goaltender. But at the same time, he can be a little eccentric. And, you know, it's, it's a little unpredictable. He's not like a rock-solid guy. Like, all right, he's like Shesterkin or Vasilevsky. Here we go. I'm like, no, like, Bob can be great. Bob, give us. Bob also take us away. But he looked pretty good in game one. Well, that, that's kind of the story of where the entire playoffs are at this point, where, I mean, you, you just saw in the Battle of New York, Akira Schmidt and the Devils get through. The the, Pan, the Hurricanes, rather, um, change their goalie throughout the course of the series, as the Panthers did. You look out west, and yeah, Dallas is probably feeling okay about it. But for the most part, there is no... There, there just isn't that goalie this year. And we talk so often about, hey, a hot goalie can really make all the difference in the in the Stanley Cup playoffs. W- what do you make of just the the kind of more balanced goaltending scene we see in the second round here? For I, I can't really remember a year where so many teams that get through have goaltending questions like this. Again, including the Devils, who just uh, pulled off the upset against maybe the best goalie left in the playoffs in Shesterkin. Well, think about, Blake, specifically the Bruins. The fact that Swayman starts in Game 7, you're like, wow. You know, in the past, you would really have to be, you know, demonstrably poor in a series of games to not be the guy moving forward. We've seen for years tandem goaltenders in the regular season, but when push comes to shove, the coach picks a guy, and that's it. Unless, literally, he gets drilled in the first four games and has, like, an absolute sieve, they're going to ride that guy. And now it's no longer the case. Now you can have a tandem throughout the regular season. We've long passed the days of Grant Fear playing 70 games in net, Andy Moak picking up scraps. Now you're going to just go 45 games, you know, 39 for the other guy, whatever it is, and then come playoff time, you can literally switch from game to game. And here's the craziest part. Normally in the past, if you had your so-called number one goaltender, you fell out of favor with him, the backup came in and was serviceable, that'd be it. But now it can change again. Like if, if the backup comes in, isn't as good, well, we'll go back to the number one guy again. Like that, that's what I think is amazing. Like Akira Schmidt, it wasn't even guaranteed he'd start game seven, even though he rectified the ship, so to speak, with the devil. So I think that's what's crazy to me, Blake, is it's like we've seen goalies in tandem. Of course we have. But 
the fact that on any given night, you don't know where the coach is going to go. And, and it feels like everyone's okay with that. Like the goaltenders understand there's going to be a level of uncertainty and unpredictability. And, and as you said, there's no one great goaltender. There's no Patrick Watt standing out there this year. It's a bunch of guys who have been good to great, and they just hope to ride the hot hand at the right time. Um, I don't know if you saw the, the, the two fans that were at the game yesterday wearing Panthers jerseys who were at the Lightning series wearing Lightning jerseys who and, and who uh, people doing their, their, their detective work went back in, and looked at some of the, the, the previous home games that the Maple Leafs have had this season. They've worn visiting team jerseys to like every game that they've attended. So these, these people have spent tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars to attend Toronto Maple Leaf home games to explicitly cheer against the Maple Leafs. Adnan, your thoughts? <laughs> Yeah, I saw that. And I, w- I was laughing about it because even if somebody is really has civic pride, sometimes you just go a different way. Um, my dear friend Ben Lyons, his dad, Jeffrey Lyons, famed New York film critic, he's about as New York as it gets, Manhattan guy, and he's a Red Sox fan. And people are always like, I don't understand. How could you be this proud New Yorker? How could you be a Red Sox fan? And he has this great quote. He's like, the heart knows reasons that only the heart knows unto itself. And for some people, they just need to be trolls. It's like, you know what? They're, they are going to be delighted in the fact that they all pay, as you said, thousands of dollars just to see a team lose rather than their team win. Like, it's the ultimate schadenfreude in that they're saying anyone but the Leafs. And we don't care who the Leafs are playing, we're going to cheer for that team. And again, if you're a Montreal Canadiens fan, I get it. You're a Habs fan, you hate the Leafs. Like, God, I cannot take a Leafs stealing like a victory. But, like, mm-hmm. this is just bizarre to see I'm cheering for the Lightning and the Panthers. But there is that element that's always at play. People that just don't want to see others happy, right? This is why we can't have nice things. Well, and mathematically speaking, like, your, your odds of succeeding if you're rooting against, if you're rooting for 20 or 31 teams in the NHL against one team, like, you're going to be, you're going to be right very, very often. The Leafs are not going to win the Cup more than 50% of the years or even more than 0% of the years sometimes. Um, so it, it's a good bet that way. You mentioned the Red Sox. Let, let's pivot there because we've got Alec Manoa on the hill tonight. The Jays trying to prevent their first four-game losing streak of the season. The AL East, a juggernaut, of course. Uh, the big storyline tonight, even though both of these teams are playing really well, I think is going to be the first meeting between Manoa and Alex Verdugo, who had been fairly critical of Manoa in the offseason, uh, a little unprompted about uh, Manoa's fire on, on the mound and things like that. He walked those comments back a little bit this week. I actually thought it was a, it was a well-done job by him to, to kind of be like, hey, I talked to some people around him, and like it seems mm. like I had the wrong impression of him. So, well, he also did just say, like, I, I shouldn't have maybe brought that to the media. Maybe I should have said yeah. it one-on-one. Sure, <laughs> which is still better. Um, Adnan, though, I, I guess uh, to, to tee tonight's game up, which is on, on Sportsnet, of course, um, is this doing anything for you from a reigniting the Blue Jays Red Sox mini division rivalry? Like, like, are you seeing some more heat to these games? Are you more interested in tonight's game than you maybe otherwise would have been? Yeah, we're calling it rivalry week here on MLB tonight, <laughs> and we have that game tonight here on the National Network at seven o'clock Eastern. So our show is going for an hour, and then we're we're building up the Jays Red Sox. I texted my buddy Alex Cora. I said, "Hey, take it easy on the Jays here," and he wrote back, "Easy. They demolished us last year." So <laughs> he's in, he's enjoying the fact Boston's trying to get some revenge. But you're right, the whole Alec versus Alex conversation. I mean, it's it's entertaining for me. I'm always looking for storylines and things to get amused by, and, and I think Verdugo realizes in hindsight, as Ben said, he just shouldn't have said it publicly. It's okay to say it privately, and, and there's nothing wrong, by the way, with walking the comments back. 
I know some people say, no, once you say a comment, you have to die on that hill. But it's okay to pop off a little bit. Go, hey, I don't care for this guy's antics. And then say, no, I talked to some other Jays. Hey, maybe I just misinterpreted it. We're all good. And, and for Manoa, one thing we know about him is he's not going to back down from anybody. He does not care. He is going to speak his mind. And normally, he can back it up. Now, this year hasn't been as great, 4.88 ERA, but he's been great against the Red Sox. 1.46 ERA, 4-0 in six career starts. I'm curious if he can, can deliver again because Verdugo has been hot, too. Against Manoa, he hits 438, two doubles and a home run, extra base hit each of his last four games. Um, and the one thing about Manoa, too, as you guys all know, is, is the hit batters. Only Charlie Morton has hit more batters than Manoa, 37 to 34, across the majors since the start of 2021. So um, it wouldn't be shocking if Manoa drills Verdugo, and all on purpose, he just hits a lot of guys. And then, of course, that will uh, lead to, I'm sure, too much conversation. Maybe Bench is clearing, oh, it's a purpose pitch, et cetera. But bottom line is this. Boston's winning right now because their offense is ridiculous. Jays have to pitch well tonight. Manoa has to be in his A game. Boston, 28 runs on 52 hits, 10 home runs during their current four-game win streak. Jays got to snap that. Uh, that's a lot of runs. Uh, last one before we let you go, Adnan. No, we got to let you run. But uh, your pal... Cora, uh, I have seen some people saying they think he looks a little bit like Kendall Roy. Do you see it yourself? <laughs> you know, I, that's the first time I've heard that. Now I'm going to put a side-by-side with him and Jeremy Strong. Yeah, yeah I guess there's a little bit of that He's there. He's got like, some energy, yeah. Yeah, Kendall was a bit of a tan. I could see a little bit of that. Just The eyes more than anything, right? Alex yeah. and, and Jeremy Strong's eyes kind of similar, the way that they're kind of set. Wow, that's funny. Next time I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pitch that as a show idea here, you know. <laughs> Whose side are you on here? Why do you want Kendall Roy slash Alex Cora to win when it comes to succession? By the way, I've got to be honest. This was the last episode. I know we loved the show. This is one of the first ones. I had to check my watch a little bit. Uh, Just because, not out of boredom, but I just thought it wasn't really a whole lot going on. And Mm. maybe it was because it was a super sports Sunday. Like, Mm. Knicks at one. Steph Curry drops 50. Panthers beat the Bruins. Then we get succession. Avalanche cracking game seven. But I thought the first half hour, I was like, oh, this is where we're going again? You know, Tweedledee, Tweedledum. Kendall and, uh, and Roman and then Shiv coming back. I thought, it, I thought it finished strong, but this was the first time, fellas, I really felt like I really missed Logan. I know he had a cameo, but still, it's, it, it's tough to top Brian Cox. I'm not sure in Canada. Here in America, he's dominating direct TV commercials. So Brian yeah. Cox is still living on my television. No, I, I, we don't get those here. So it was, it was nice to see him uh, in, in, in weirdo form in the last episode. And yeah, uh, it's, uh, unfortunately, we're counting down the, the days until the final episode, which is apparently going to be 90 minutes long. It has to be the election, right? The, the, the finale has to be... Oh, my God. I want to see if uh, my man Connor ends up being the president. It would be incredible. <laughs> By the way, when Kendall went out there and gave that speech, I was praying beyond all belief. I said, God, I hope he raps. Still one of the greatest moments ever. L to the OG, the Kendall yeah. rap. I, I knew he wouldn't, but I said, God, I just wish at the end. If he, if he spits a few lyrics, I'm going to lose it. Yeah. No, I did well. Uh, you always do well, Adnan. Uh, we'll talk next week, buddy. Too kind. Ben and Blake, I appreciate it, boys. Talk soon. See ya. Adnan Verk, MLB Network, NHL Network, and the Cinephile Podcast. Not to book the show for us ahead of time. We got to make sure we don't have Adnan on Monday, though, because can't imagine everyone will be caught up on succession. Right, and we know he's already a, spoiled it once. Coming off of a Sunday Leafs game. Um, so, yeah, we'll... we'll Maybe Adnan will be a Tuesday, Wednesday option. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll see. <laughs> Definitely, because I'm, I'll tell you this much. I'm, I'm earplugging if we have Adnan on. I haven't watched Session yet. Yeah, no, I get it. Um, how about we just don't ask him about it if, yeah, if, if you haven't seen it or if I, I haven't mean, seen I it. I feel like we asked carefully before, yeah. but what are you, you going to do? What are you going to do? He's the best. That's uh, 
if that's the cost to doing business, it's it probably comes out in our favor in the long run. Uh, not much coming out in the Blue Jays' favor through two games of this four-game set at Fenway Park. As starting pitching hasn't been good enough, the bullpen after 15 straight what hitless innings, yeah, faltered a little bit recently, and that the offense had one good inning, and Dalton Varsho's alive, but uh, yeah, hasn't gone well through. You can have two games. one good thing at a time. Yeah, that's you right. You can have. Barrios and Kikuchi cooking, uh-huh. or you can have the bottom parts of the order contributing, or you can have the bullpen being good. You cannot have all of them at once or even two of them at once. Oh, that's a shame. You dug too far <laughs> in on Dalton Varsho, and now that's all you get. The whole meal is Dalton Varsho. Yeah, well, he, he fixed himself, apparently. It was just one thing. It was with the, the toe tap. Anyways, we'll talk to Dan Schulman next. The fan drive time continues. Ben Ennis, Blake Murphy, Sportsnet 590, the fan, Sportsnet 360. Everything you need to know about the Blue Jays. Blair and Barker. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Fan Drive Time, Sportsnet 590, The Fan, and Sportsnet 360. Blue Jays, Red Sox resuming their series. 7 o'clock on Sportsnet One, where you will hear the dulcet tones of Dan Schulman, who joins us now. How's it going, Dan? How's Fenway? Uh, Fenway is great. It's a little gray. It's a little cold, Bummer. but there will be a ball game tonight, and that's all we care about. Uh, you know who will be nice and, and cozy and warm is, is Brandon Belt in, in, in the dugout yet again, uh, not in the, the starting lineup against a, a right-handed pitcher. Um, he was pinch hit for against a righty in game one of the series. He's obviously off to a, a very slow, slow start. But I do, like, if you're keeping him on the roster, like, what what is the plan for Brandon Bell? I, I think it's kind of a work in progress, to be honest with you. I think on the one hand, they'd love to, you know, get him in there and see if playing him four or five days in a row maybe, you know, shakes the rust off and if the knee's okay and everybody says it's okay. So, but on the other hand, you're trying to win ball games, and And right now he's just not hitting. So, it's interesting because he's not hitting very much. Kevin Biggio's not hitting very much. Nathan Lucas isn't playing very much. And, and so, you know, the bench, whoever that happens to be on a given night, doesn't really look like we thought the bench was going to look. And, and you know, at the beginning of the year, I think we thought that Varsho and Belt and most of the time Kiermaier and some of the time Biggio would be in there against righties. And, you know, you'd have a lefty hitting four and six and maybe eight and nine and now they're down to two lefties again against right-handed pitching. It's it's not exactly how I think anybody, including the team themselves, itself, thought it would be. So I, I don't know what the answer is, to be honest with you, because it's one of those things you want to give him a chance to play to see if he comes out of it. But every time he goes in there and has a rough night and you got to pinch hit for him, you know, then you you got to try to find a hotter option because, you know, they've got some soft spots in the lineup right now, though they're scoring a decent amount of runs. But, you know, you want to get as many hot bats in there as you can. you got to win games. And if anyone's curious, the answer is not coming from the minor leagues. You look at who's on the 40-man and guys that we thought would maybe push for a roster spot at camp. Or Elvis Martinez back at A. he's been a disaster. Spencer Horowitz exists, but he's, you know, offers none of the positional flexibility of a Kevin Biggio. And then names like Otto Lopez have really struggled. Addison Barger's on the IL. Like, the the most realistic thing is, well, Tyler Heineman comes up as a third catcher so that you can DH one of the catchers every day. Um, there isn't an immediate solution there dan i I guess i I say that to ask what is the timeline under which the jays have to start thinking about 
other options to better fortify the the back end of this position player side of the roster or you know when when we talked about adding lefties for lineup versatility you know there's a bar those lefties have to cross otherwise mm-hmm. the decisions for an opposing manager aren't difficult and then the versatility is right. nice but it's not really changing the game what does a timeline look like for the Jays to kind of have to make a decision on if this is enough or they need to explore other options it's interesting because, you know, historically trades don't get made in May very right. often, right? We all understand that. They get made closer to the deadline, which is usually right around July 31st, depending on what day of the week it falls. So um, it, it's hard to make external changes at this point. Of, of the names you just mentioned, Blake, though, there is one that interests me, and, and that's Spencer Horowitz yeah. because um, he's a guy, um, he does not offer the positional flexibility of Kevin Biggio, as you said. But Brandon Belt is a first base slash DH. And I'm not advocating for anything to, to change, but Spencer Horwitz is a first baseman. They've tried him a little bit in the outfield, I mm-hmm. think. I don't know if they've done it this year. Yeah, I know two, they did it two last games year. and left. Okay, two games and left. So he, he but he's a first baseman. And, and um, but he's a guy who just he figures it out and he's got a skill that not a lot of people have. He gets on base. And uh, I haven't looked at his numbers in the last few days, but it, it's kind of followed him up through the minors the last couple of years. And it's kind of like, you know, he gets promoted and it takes him a little while to figure it out. And then he does really well. And he gets promoted and it takes him a while to figure it out. And then he does really well. And I think he's getting on base at a very high clip mm-hmm. right now um, at AAA. He's not going to hit a ton of home runs, but mm-hmm. he'll, he's historically hit for a good average. And again, with the, with all the walks, he gets on base at like a 400 clip. So, uh, I, I don't know. Um, I, I don't know what the timeline is. That's something for, uh, you know, people on the inside. But, um, you know, I think if it's three, four weeks from now and they still have a couple of spots they're just not getting anything from, they they do have to figure it out. Now, some of it is, are the other seven spots in the lineup hitting like crazy and you're winning a ton of games? Or, you know, have other guys quieted down and you're not winning, winning as many games as you might want as well? But, you're right. They don't have a, a ton of options, but Horowitz is a guy I think I would keep an eye on. Yeah, and your your recall on the on the numbers is incredible, Dan. This is why you're a pro. He is walking almost 20% of his at-bats, 441 OBP, uh, only wow. only the one home run, but hitting just shy of 300. So, um, you know, on paper, yeah, it doesn't make sense to have him with belt on the roster, but if belt were to say phantom IL or, or need right. a, you know, something mm-hmm. that gets him a rehab start or something like that, um, the numbers speak for themselves. And he's he's uh, 25, almost 25 and a half at this point. Mm-hmm. So you don't even have to worry about the, you know, if you run into Barger or Elvis or something like that, it's, well, do you really want him on the bench mm-hmm. not playing a ton? And he's already on the 40 man yeah, as well. Yeah, and he's, right. he's almost, he's like 25 and a half. He's not a prospect right. anymore. He's at the age where you could reasonably have him as a bench guy. And And you know what? He's the kind of guy where it worries me if they don't, you know, choose to find a spot for him at the end of the year you know, a shiny new toy comes along and he gets taken off the 40 because he's 25, 26 years old Mm -hmm. and he winds up going to another team. And maybe it's like a, you know, a Cincinnati and Oakland or whatever. And, and and you find out three years later, boy, he's a pretty good player. Yeah. You you know, so um, I've actually kind of followed him a little bit more than I follow most prospects for a couple of years because I think he's pretty good. And, and his, like I said, his numbers carry from one level to the next, to the next in the minors. And um, you know, I get that he's 25 and a half, but if, shoot if he's good and you get three four years like maybe he's a little more polished and a little more mature and won't be as wide-eyed because he's not a 21 year old kid you know and, and if you bring him up on a team that's contending he doesn't have to hit third or fourth or fifth he doesn't have to play seven days a week you know maybe he's a guy who can help you three four days a week against righties he can dh he can spell vladdy first who knows we're getting you know we're getting a little bit 
ahead of ourselves. But I do think he's a guy worth mentioning. Uh, you know, plan A is Brandon Belt gets it going because Brandon Belt's had a really nice major league career and, um, you know, there's talent in there. And whether it's rust or whether it's the knee or whether it's something else, uh, I, I don't know. But uh, at this point, you know, it, it kind of feels like John Schneider's a little bit hamstrung in terms of the moves that, that he can make. As in the first, you know, two, three weeks of the season, we saw all kinds of changes in pinch hitting and, and this and that. But when you got, you know, if you got a couple of guys on the bench that you're not as comfortable going to to bring them in or you're not as comfortable starting them, then all of a sudden you're kind of playing, you know, the same nine or ten guys every day. Yeah, let's at least see what the guy with the career 394 on base in 1,347 minor league plate appearances, let's see what he can do at the major league level. It it it, it um, becomes less of an issue if Dalton Varsho has figured it out, which, I mean, right. early returns and the changing of the, the, the toe tap to the, the standard stride uh, look pretty good. I, we hear about that stuff a lot in the offseason. It was a big storyline surrounding Matt Chapman. How, how common is that to, to take place during the course of a season and, and again, early returns pretty good. Like how, how much can we bank on, on this new Dalton Var show? Right. I'm working on a toe tap too. You guys just yeah. don't see it because they only shoot us from the waist up, but I've had some really good luck with it. So I can stay with it, but, but guys do it all the time, I think. And, and it's um, well, some guys are tinkerers and some guys aren't like Hal Ripken would change in the middle of an at bat. Like he would literally change his setup and his stance and his stride in the middle of an at bat. And, you know, Var shows better than 198 or whatever he was hitting. Uh, coming or 189, I think it was coming into the game last night. So um, I, I don't know if somebody got in his ear or if he tried it himself. I do know that Joe Siddle talked to Dave Hudgens down on the field, and so he'll be breaking it down during the telecast tonight. So stay tuned for that. But but you know, Matt Chapman did it in the off season, right? Like he came into spring training and said to everybody who would listen, "Here's what I'm working on, and here's what I hope it'll do." And it's worked out exactly like that. And, and you know, truthfully, at a, even better, I think, than anybody could have hoped. So VAR shows better than he has shown uh, the first, whatever it is, five weeks of the season. And I, I imagine it's not easy to make a change, you know, between a, a Monday game and a Tuesday game. But eventually you get to the point where what you're doing isn't working and you can keep banging your head against the wall or you can try something new. Well, if the results are half of a, a Matt Chapman improvement, then Dalton Varshall could be looking at a May player of the month. So that's great. Uh-huh. Uh, Alec Manoa on the Hill tonight, Dan, uh, he obviously the other weekend had that tremendous start against the Yankees. Looked like everything was right in the world with Alec Manoa. Bit of a, I mean, the results were there against Seattle. Fine enough to earned over five innings, but uh, a lot of walks, some of the control issues creeping back in. What are you looking for primarily from Alec Manoa tonight to judge early on uh, if this is, you know, the New York Yankees version of Alec Manoa or the version of Alec Manoa that, that struggled a little bit to start the season? Yeah, well, the interesting thing, first of all, is this is a really good offensive team, the Red Sox, like right now, they are. I mean, Verdugo is the best version of himself at the top of the order. Yoshida it looks really good. Like, there are, there have been a lot of impressive at-bats in the two games um, that we have seen right now. This is a, a team that will grind you a little bit, foul off some pitches. They don't chase very much, so uh, it's going to be a challenge. Um, what I will look for from Alec Manoa, and it, it's a bit of an oversimplification, I guess, but is, is, is his command. You know, the slider has been such a weapon for him in his first two years, and it has not, it's been a negative for him so far this year in terms of the damage that has been done against it. So there, I guess there are three kinds of sliders he can throw. He can throw the one that is so far off the plate they don't chase it. That's not doing him any good. He can throw the one that's right down the middle that's getting hit, which is not doing him any good. The one he needs to throw is the strike-to-ball slider, the one that looks like a strike. They swing at it. 
but uh, you know, ideally they swing and miss or they foul it off or they hit a weak ground ball or, or something like that. Can he put his pitches where he wants to put his pitches? Um, I think they play off each other a lot. Like the better his slider is and the better his fastball is, the better his fastball is, the better his changeup is, you know, and he's got six left. He's got six left-handed batters to deal with tonight. Um, and he doesn't, I don't think he throws the slider as much against the lefties as he does against the righties. So against the lefties, it's going to be, you know, four-seamer, two-seamer changeup with some sliders mixed in there. But I think he's just got to put the ball where he needs to. If he's throwing that front hip two-seamer to a left-handed batter, he's got to get it in there near the inside corner. It can't leak back out over the middle of the plate, or Rafael Devers is going to hit it a long way. So, um, you know, it's kind of the same thing that a lot of pitchers have to do to do well, but he's got to put the ball where, he, where he's got to put the ball. Dan, I know we got to let you go here, and you and I texted a little bit on Saturday, but it's had a day or two, a couple days now to settle in. Uh, Canada's draw for the FIBA World Cup this summer. How are you feeling about it? Uh, tough. Uh, could have been better, could have been worse. Um, I think the sneaky tough part is Latvia mm-hmm. um, because uh, Canada, you know, unless there's crazy tiebreaker stuff, they got to win two of the three to get out. Now, um, the good news, I guess, and I think you would feel, I don't think we talked about this, but with France hosting the Olympics next year, there's no urgency. For they, they don't have to qualify. Mm-hmm. Like, they're in, right? So if France sends less than its best team, then um, then I, I think Canada can beat France. And, and, and even if they send their best team, Canada can beat France. But I think that Canada's got a good chance. But ideally, you, you go 3-0 and in the first round, and then even if Spain gets you in the second round, you're in the quarterfinals. And once you're in the quarterfinals, all bets are off. And maybe you've done enough already. You know, but it, as you know, it's complicated. But what's Puerto Rico doing? What's Mexico doing? You know, what are they doing? It Because you've got to be one of the top two finishers amongst the America's countries. So um, I, I'm feeling pretty good about it. We don't know until camp opens and we see who's there. I've got like eight of the A-listers in my head who I think are virtual locks, but as always, there are some wild cards Mm. Um, and, and, you know, who fills those, you know, the bottom, not the bottom, but the other four spots on the roster always remains to be seen. But I, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to stay hopeful. I'm going to be Charlie Brown here. Lucy's going to put that football down. And this time I'm going to kick it right through the uprights. That's where I am right now. How's that? Why not? I mean, yeah, uh, just do it again, right? Like, let, let's yeah. yeah, let's all have the same mentality. Uh, Dan, uh, thanks for this. Enjoy the uh, the game tonight. Have a great call. Thanks. Thanks, guys. Talk to you soon. See ya. Dan Schulman uh, getting ready for Red Sox, Blue Jays game three, and we're all anticipating bottom of the first inning. Leadoff hitter Alex Verdugo against Alec Manoa. Where Punk. nothing's going to happen. I mean, no. no. If Alec Manoa cool, were pitching though. really well, I would be, like, on full alert for yeah. it. Uh, he is not though. Yeah. And I don't know that you can afford a hit by a pitch, even if it's not like fully intentional, if it's just no, like, ah, I'm going to pitch to no. the inner third and see where it no goes. No base runners for uh, yeah. Alec Manona needs to get back on track. Let's like, before we move on, like I do, there's a couple things from yesterday's game that I'm interested in, in your opinion on. Okay. Uh, a lot, actually. I'm interested in your opinion on everything, but these Which specific, sport, are we still talking Jays or are we going yeah. back to Leafs? No. Okay. Jays. Um, you said Kikuchi was not good, but didn't walk anyone again. Like, if you are eschewing the, the, the walks for just being in the strike zone, and you know what? Sometimes that's going to happen where you don't get out of the fifth. Would you take that trade yeah. off? 
I will. Yeah, me too. I will. It's, uh, I mean, it, it lets you on your bad days, and this wasn't the case yesterday, but in general, not walking guys, not giving those free passes, not going into the eight, nine pitch plate appearances and laboring to get outs. That lets you at least do the Jose Brios thing from last year of, I don't have it, but I'm at least going to get you through five. Yeah. And it, it might not be pretty, but it saves the bullpen a little bit. I think there's value to that. I think it just more than anything it lets you know that the conviction in his stuff is still there. And that has, you know, we've heard over the years that that's something that he can lose when things aren't going well. And the, and the walks tend to be not as much a command thing as it is uh, not trusting your stuff yeah. near the plate thing. So I, I think those are good indicators uh, for him moving forward. The stuff is nasty enough that more often than not, if you don't give free passes away and you don't run into an offense as hot as the Red Sox, uh, you're probably going to be okay. I was going to make a very passionate argument that that George Springer should have taken that first pitch and allowed Kevin Kiermaier an opportunity to try and steal second base against the Red Sox team that has allowed uh, 28 stolen bases against 35 attempts. So that's only seven caught stealing. But five of those have been by Connor Wong, who is actually like among the leaders in caught stealing above above average. And this is where I know Mike Petriello and StatCast and MLB uh, Advanced Media have all have this new stat that and, and look, the evidence over the history of baseball tells us that you steal more on the pitcher than mm-hmm. you do on the catcher catcher can you, help you still yeah i guess maybe the way to frame it is you steal on the pitcher but you get thrown out by the catcher oh is yeah. that maybe a better way to frame it because sure. like her poor reese mcguire has gotten run on a ton yeah. with the same pitchers that connor wong is has throwing out. everyone out yeah with. no he's been good so yeah and, no, he's, back, and he's back there today yeah it might be uh, and he hit two home runs uh doubling like his career total yesterday it, it, his second one the eventual game winner a home run at fenway park as we clearly saw and uh into the crawford boxes in houston uh, that's all that's it but that's hey that, that's where they were playing it's right there for the blue jays too uh they had the one good I, inning i can't wait till he goes to arbitration and the red sox try to pull up well according to Statcast, that wasn't out of a lot of parks and the arbitrator is like wait a second where's he gonna play his games next year they say well fenway oh yeah and well. then so the arbitrator is like what <laughs> what does this matter no they're they left the park they're home yeah, runs they did just barely, though. All right, when we come back, uh, the Leafs just barely lost game one to the Florida Panthers. Just barely. Two measly goals. We'll talk to uh, Sean Tantilli, NHL writer for The Athletic. Next, as the fan drive time continues, Ben Annis, Blake Murphy, we are on Sportsnet 590 The Fan and Sportsnet 360.